podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick and joined as always by Mr. Carol Matchett. How are you, sir? Dare I say 7 out of 10? Why not? <laughs> Sounds like your day has been about a 3 out of 10. But um, not to worry, not to worry. We're here to cheer you up. We're going to have a bit of a nostalgic walk down memory lane today. But you have some sort of list that you've put together and given the list you were given yesterday, I, I fear greatly for what this might be. <laughs> well, I'm being slightly kinder to you than Harry Walsh was to me in terms of the, uh, shall we say, overall level of quality uh, in the list, but also less kind or more kind, depending on how you see it. Because I don't really want you to rank these by ability. I want you to rank these by your favourite to watch or look back on or talk about or just how mad they were to watch them play. So okay. I'm going to give you a list of eight lunatic goalkeepers and you can rank them accordingly. Oh, brilliant. Love this. Right, go. Right, you got yourself a little little bit of paper. I um, do indeed. Pencil. Right. Carlos Kameni. Carlos Kameni. Bruce Grobler. Okay. Rogerio Saini. Good chef. Fabian Bartes. Okay. Jens Lehmann. <laughs> right. Jorge Campos. Yeah. Rene Higuita. Hoping the last one is Chile there. Uh, Jose Luis Chile, yeah. Right. Well, I'm going to start... As and when you wish. I'm going to start with Chilevere number one because he was A, psychotic and B, one of the greatest free kick takers and penalty takers I've ever seen. Now, obviously, he spent sort of the prime of his career with uh, Vela Sarsfield. So you didn't get to see a whole lot of him because that's sort of the age before... YouTube and Twitter and all that kind of good stuff where if he was playing now, he'd just be getting clipped up all the time and he would be a a social media phenomenon. And I don't think he'd have stayed in South America quite as long. He um, went to Brazil and then spent the vast majority of his career in Argentina. Did have a spell with Real Zaragoza in the late 80s, early 90s. But Vela Sarsfield is where most people will know him. And he scored... 36 league goals (laughs) while playing there, which is outrageous. He scored 48 goals in 341 games in all competitions. He had back-to-back seasons where he scored 11 and then 12 in 41 games in each season. He moved to Europe after that 
and joined Strasbourg and they wouldn't allow him to take uh, penalties and he was quite upset by that. Um, and he finished off back with Penarol. I think he, I think he might have retired with Velasarsfield just to have the the retirement. I, I loved watching him for Paraguay. Obviously, they played in a, the the Copa Americas where you would see him most often. But they did obviously play at the ninety eight World Cup, and he was the first keeper to ever take a, a direct free kick on goal in a World Cup, which just a shame it didn't go in. Um. I'll go with him number one. He was just a lot of fun. And he was a really good goalkeeper as well, which is underlooked. Great organiser of his defence. Always, always very aggressive, like coming for crosses, coming out for 1v1s. Um, So I'm going to go with him as my number one. Number two, I think I'll go with George Campos, who... Again, a lot of people will remember him more for the kits than anything else. But it's worth remembering, this guy's about 5'7". And he was an international goalkeeper. And a really, really good international goalkeeper. Uh, he'd spent part of his career playing as a striker. And I think even late in his career would play the odd game up front. So he was a very skilled player. Um, he was just a lot of fun. He was just a lot of fun. He was... Insane, an insane person, but he was a lot of fun. Um, so I'll go with him, number two. Number three, I'm going to go Bartes, who's probably the most accomplished goalkeeper on this list as a pure goalkeeper. Uh, he invented the um, goalkeepers wearing short sleeves phenomenon early in his career. Um, was was at Marseille, was at Monaco. Obviously, it didn't work out all that well from at United, but when he played in France and he played with France, he was great. Um, won a World Cup, won a Euros. Again, a shorter goalkeeper, 5'10-ish, um, but incredible agility. Made one of the best saves I ever saw from Didi Haman at Anfield, where Haman unleashed an absolute rocket that was heading for the top corner, and Barthez somehow managed to, to pull it out of the fucking net so um, I'll I'll go with him um, he also did win of course the, the Champions League with Marseille if I'm not mistaken uh, he did he did indeed he won the Champions League with Marseille in 93 so you know he had good success the whole way through his career um, so he's three number four I mean, Rene Higuita, there's multiple World Cups where he just does mad things. I still remember him trying to dribble out against Cameroon and Roger Mia just taking the ball off him and scoring. Um, the scorpion kick is obviously what a lot of people remember him for. But like the rest of these are largely lunatics on the pitch. This man was a full-blown lunatic off the pitch. And got himself in significant trouble on a couple of occasions. Um, He was actually kidnapped. (laughs) He was kidnapped in 1993 because he was involved with a lot of gangsters and drug barons and stuff. Um, The fact that he was very close friends with Diego Maradona is something that will always stand in his favour. It was just great fun. And he scored a lot of goals. 
Uh, over his career, he scored 43, 43 club goals and three international goals, which is, is just great. So, um, yeah, we're going to go with him next. The scorpion kick remains one of the greatest things that ever happened at Wembley, and it upsets so many people. Um, see, I missed... I, I've seen I've seen a lot of the games, but I missed the best years of Bruce. So I'm going to put Bruce at number five. Um, my dad tells some great stories. I used to tell some great stories about Grobelar. Like, he went to see Liverpool play in a pre-season friendly and Liverpool were dominating the game. Grobler had only just signed and nobody was paying much attention to what Bruce was doing. And he was walking around the penalty area on his, on his hands, like in a handstand, just pricking about. He, he sat up on top of the crossbar at one point um, and otherwise was just standing chatting to the people in the stand behind him or the, on the terrace behind him and not paying much attention to the game. But Bruce was a great goalkeeper. Like the, the clown side of him made a lot of people overlook what a really good goalkeeper he was. Uh, so I've got him. Actually, he, he should, no, I'm going to go with him fifth. I'll go with him fifth. Um, after that, Rogerio Senni was, is probably the calmest person on this list in terms of, he didn't do endless amounts of stupid things, um, but obviously he scored an absolute shitload of goals, 131 goals during his career, uh, one from open play, the rest from free kicks and penalties. Uh, he had seasons where he scored 21. He played 75 games in a season. The year before, he played 71. Uh, 21 in 75, 16 in 57, and 10 in 69. So that's a three-season run where that man scored 47 goals as a goalkeeper. Um, lunacy. Absolute lunacy. And, like, and the thing is, he didn't score for his first five seasons. So, you know, how many was he denied by having managers that just weren't weren't willing to, to give him his opportunities? Um, yeah, I'll go with him at six. Carlos Camini or Jens Lehmann? I, I would probably say Jens Lehmann is, is next for me, just because I was never really a fan of Carlos Camini. I never thought he was all that good. I thought he was kind of overrated because he was a bit eccentric. Now, I know he had decent seasons for Espanyol and, and for Malaga, um, but for me, he's probably eight. So I'll go Jens Lehmann seventh. And I did like Jens Lehmann. Um, he was another aggressive lunatic. Didn't do crazy things with the ball at his feet. Didn't score goals. But a, a known a known head case. Um, but was part of the Arsenal invincible. So, you know, could also could also back it up on the pitch. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I've got Chilever 1, Campos 2, Bartes 3, Higita 4, Bruce 5, um, Rogerio 6, Lehman 7, and, and Kamini 8. How's that? Which one of them would you take if you had to have one right now? 
who's saving our season? Um, because what this defense needs is someone with a little, uh, a little more eccentricity about them. <laughs> I reckon you put Chilever into midfield, and he does a job <laughs> for you. He just kicks people up in the air and punches them. Um, I believe he punched multiple teammates during his career. So we'll just take him. I remember Campos that we was, were Campos the best footballer of the group. Like he legitimately could have been an outfield player. We we hear a lot about. You know, this player could play in midfield, that player could do that. Jorge Campos could play outfield and did play outfield. So uh, as a footballer, he's the best of them. I'm pretty sure we were close to signing Chilever at one stage, mid-90s I maybe. I think that as well. I'm pretty I, sure I we were like that. half a million away or so under maybe Roy Evans, somewhere like that. Yeah, I remember that as well. That was under Roy. Roy had, had I think, had enough of, of David James and... We were heavily linked with him, and unfortunately, it never came to anything, which is one of the great chains because it would have been tremendous fun to watch him play uh, on a regular basis. Right, let us move along. Today's nostalgic topic is your five favorite teams of all time. Now, this can be a single season, this can be a run of two to three seasons that a club had where, you know, a lot of the, the players were the same, the manager was the same, and they had, it, it does not be great success, but they had a brand of football you really enjoyed. It, it doesn't have to be the best team, but your favourite teams. So, do you want to go first? I will let you take your first pick. Right, well, I, I'm going to go with, I actually think this is the best club team of all time but they're also one of my favourite teams to watch games of. And that is Arrigo Sacchi's AC Milan circa 1987 to 1990. Um, Back to uh, league title in 87-88, back-to-back European Cups 88-89 and 89-90. It's a team built on the best defence that's ever been put together. Tassotti, Costa Curta, Baresi, Maldini. You had Frank Reichardt in central midfield. You had Ruth Hullett and Marco van Basten up front. You had Donna Doni. You had um, Carlo Ancelotti. And you had Angelo Colombo, largely the same team year after year. There were other tremendous players in the squad, including a young Daniele Massaro, a young Dimitri Albertini, uh, Filippo Galli, who's a very underrated defender uh, historically, who would have started for any other club in Europe, but chose to stay at Milan and be kind of the third centre-back. I just love the simplicity of that team. Now, <clears throat> I, I, I was going to put a controversial team into this, into my five, but I've decided not to, but I'll mention it at the end. Um, again, because of simplicity, but <clears throat> this team, and you know how much I love a box midfield. This team was one of the early box midfields where you had the wide players, Colombo and Donadoni, who would move in and play as dual tens between the lines when the game necessitated that that's what they do, but would drop wide and play wide when need be. The success is, I mean, back-to-back European Cups, there's so few teams over history that have done that. And the three Dutchmen, I mean, there's an argument made that at the time, Ruud Hullet was the second best player in the world. 
Uh, they were key, obviously, to the Euro 88 Dutch success as well. Um, and like I said, it's the greatest defence ever put together. It's perfect. It's the best centre-back ever in Baresi, the best defender ever in Maldini. Tassotti was just an absolute lockdown defender that you could do nothing with. You couldn't get by him, couldn't get away from him. And Costa Kurt is maybe the best man-marking centre-back of all time. So when you've got that and you've got the three Dutch boys, I think it's fairly spectacular. And they were they were good to watch because in an era of Serie A where you know, defensive football was king. They were great defensively, but they were also really good going forward. And this was the introduction of pressing football into Western Europe because Lobanovsky had had his teams doing that in Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union. And when he was manager of the Soviet national team, he pioneered that type of thing Saki brought it to Western Europe, tweaked it to work with what he had. And, I mean, that team is the basis for so much of what we've seen since. Like, the likes of Conte, Capello, Klopp, Simeone, all directly or indirectly take inspiration from this team. And if it were possible to put this team in their prime against Guardiola's Barcelona in their prime, I would take this team as long as everything else was equal, uh, equal as long as they had you know the same training regimes, the same access to medical and diet and nutrition and all the rest of it. If all of that was even, I would take this team because not only could they outplay you, they could physically dominate you as well because Van Basten was 6-2, Hullet was 6-3, Rijkaard was 6-3, we hadn't really seen a midfielder like Reichard before. 6-3, powerful, endless energy, but also an incredible technical player. So that's my first team. Um, the extent to which they were impeccable and incredible actually leads into what I will now pick as my first team. I haven't put them in any particular order, so I'm happy to go off just wherever the conversation takes yeah, us. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally um, just going um, yeah. chronologically is all I'm... So they're my first team because they're the oldest team on my list. So mine is almost the same team, but a few years later. So I've gone for the Fabio Capello version of this AC Milan side, which a lot of it was still the exact same players, the exact same basis for building this team. I've gone for sort of around the sort of 93, 94, but even into 95, really... Um, version of this team and like I say so many of them were still there Tosati still there Albertini was still there Donadoni was still there but they had a couple more players individually mm. who I liked uh, around that sort of time Albertini obviously still playing a big part Baresi I think Galli played in the in the 94 final I think it was he did because Baresi um, and Costa Curta were suspended so Galli stepped in next to Maldini yeah. at centre-back so they also had uh, Gianluigi Lentini at this point who I thought mm. was just an unbelievable player for a very short period of time unfortunately Van Basten still there at the time that they got to the uh, 93 final. And I think that the the biggest, aside from the fact that we're talking about effectively the same team over, what is this, a six-year sort of period between your team and my team, but the consistency of them in a time where you could only be in the Champions League, the European Cup as it was, by winning your league and say that yeah. was at its peak 
and they won it in 92, they won it in 93, they won it in 94 and reached the Champions League final three years in a row. Yeah. That was like incredibly difficult to do then. It's still ridiculously difficult to do now, but it's easy to be in the competition now. And to get there and all the way, almost three years in a row, to bounce back after losing the first one, to go on and win it again the following year against a team who many felt at the time was maybe the most complete side that had been put together in terms of on the ball as well. And then another final after that, which obviously they did go on and lose again in 95. That was such a complete team. And aside from the playing style and the players we've already mentioned, they then went and added a couple of players who are among my favourites overall. Marcel Desai obviously is one yeah. of them. Dejan Savicevic yeah. um, was there for for the next ones as well. Um, and then even like people like Zvonimir Boban spanned that period of time. Just so many of them who we still speak about now because of the impact that they had then at that point. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it's it's the same base defense. It's the same. It's a it's a different goalkeeper. Uh, Rossi had come in, I think, by by the Capello years. The same back four. Donadoni stays in midfield. Albertini takes a starting midfield role from Ancelotti. Um, they find the perfect Reichard replacement in Marcel Desailly. And obviously, like you said, Boban comes into the team for Colombo, and they still have that ability to play the flat 4-4-2 or the four-box two, and they can go one-up, one-off with their forwards as well. And they had, was it Marco Simone was it, was one of the strikers around then? Massaro had come into his own. Obviously, Van Basten had the, the ankle issue, but the Capello team was incredible. And he he actually turned the defensive side of it up a notch. Like, you look at, was it the 92-93 season? where their defensive record is just absolutely disgusting how good they are. I think it's 92-93. Let me just pull the table. Uh, no, not that season. They conceded 93-94 was the one they conceded 15. 15 goals. Yeah, yeah 15 goals conceded. They scored 36 goals all season and still walked. Well, didn't walk it. They won it by three points, but only two points per win then. Um 15 goals conceded in 34 games, only scored 36, but just won one nil every week. That's all he needed to do. Um, yeah, that, that Milan team, like there, there was such a mystique around that team as well, such an aura around Milan at this point as well. And you, do you remember when like Ryan Giggs burst onto the scene at United and all of a sudden Milan were getting ready to table this enormous world record offer. And any time there was any great player, you just had this assumption, oh, he's going to end up at AC Milan. Like when George Weah really exploded with uh, with PSG, he was going to Milan. That was just it. They just went and got whoever the best players were. They just had this financial muscle to go and get them. And they're arguably the best team in the world from 87 through to 94, which is a seven-year gap, a seven-year, eight-year run, eight-season run maybe, under two different managers, and nobody could touch them. And even a little, you know, beyond that a little bit, they still maintained that elite status. Juventus under Lippi would, would become a, a real contender and then towards the, the, the end of the 90s where one of my other teams is going to feature. Um, the, the league had gotten just so incredibly competitive that nobody could dominate it anymore. But the Milan domination from 
87 with the first league title, then the two European Cups, the three in a row under Capello and the European Cup. And like you said, getting to three European Cup finals in an era where you're only getting one team per nation in is just such an amazing achievement. Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design T-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Yeah, I mean, the longevity that they had, I don't think we can see again now unless it is between a group of five, six teams at the very, very top over the next decade or so, but not in terms of the team building, not in terms of the originality of how you make them play, nothing like that at all. No, no, agreed, agreed. Um, Right, my second team, um, 1994 through 1997, Borussia Dortmund under Otmar Hitzfeld, um, back-to-back Bundesligas and then the European Cup in the 96-97 season. As with the Milan team, this is a squad that has the core of the German team that wins the 1996 Euros with Zammer, Freund, Jürgen Kohler, who got injured in the Euros but was a key part of the squad as a leader, Karl-Heinz Riedler, um and Andreas Muller. Um this team for me is about two players though. It's about Matthias Zammer as a sweeper and Andy Muller as a ten. And it's about the tactical flexibility that this team had and the freedom that Zammer was given, where we'd obviously seen the sweeper system for many, many years. The Germans had been playing it for years in a, a back three with wing backs. The Italians had pioneered it with a a flat four and one behind the Catanaccio bolt system. But what made Zammer different was he was a pure midfield player. He was a central midfield player, box to box type. And Hitzfeld just moved him backwards and still let him play box to box. So he could start attacks from deep and move into midfield and give Dortmund an extra man. But also he'd provide that solidity at the back and that, that intelligence um, another one of my teams will, will feature much of this, but to a much more technical degree, I think. But this team were so good. And that European Cup final in 97, in 97, to me, is one of the great European Cup finals because it's two great teams that Juventus team were not at all to be sniffed at. They had phenomenal players. And that's a Juventus team that would get to multiple European Cup finals, unfortunately losing them. But, you know, when you look at the Juve team with Zinedine Zidane, Didier Deschamps, Ciro Ferrara, Alan Boxic, Christian Vieri, and Dortmund didn't just beat them, they they outplayed them in the game. Um, two goals from Riedler, the, the long ranger from 
Lars Ricken as well. Um, and there was ju- like just so many great players. That that team, Zammer, Kohler, Reuter, Jörg Heinrich, that's four of your five defenders are absolutely outstanding. Three of which I would say are all-timers in Zammer. Kohler's one of the best centre-backs of all time and Reuter's one of the best right-backs of all time. You have Paolo Sosa, who I always loved in midfield, and bizarrely Paul Lambert beside him, who'd come from Motherwell and had never shown anything to suggest he was a Champions League winning calibre player, but was brilliant in that team. And then Andy Muller behind Karl-Heinz Riedler and Stefan Schapuza. I think for me, Otmar Hitzfeld is the most underrated manager in the history of the game. And I think he's always overlooked when people talk about the real greats of the last 35 to 40 years. But this man won multiple league titles in Switzerland with Grasshopper. He won multiple Swiss Cups with both Aarau and Grasshopper. Then he won back-to-back Bundesligas and then the Champions League with Dortmund. Then he goes to Bayern. He wins four league titles in a row, wins the Champions League, gets to another Champions League final and is denied only by whatever voodoo took place in the last five minutes in the 99 Champions League final. Then he leaves seemingly into retirement, comes back to Bayern, wins the title again, and then he goes on to manage the Swiss Swiss national team for six years and had, you know, decent enough success. But I I think he is one of the all-time greats and it, it really bothers me that he is so often overlooked and doesn't get the the real credit that he deserves because for fully 15, 16 years, he was a genuinely elite manager with Dortmund and Bayern. And before that, he'd done really good work in Switzerland as well. That's uh, finally talking about the 97 Dortmund against Juve. There were so many attacking players on mm. show in that game. It was really nice actually to see Dortmund particularly, obviously, because of the, the styles of the two players, but play the way they normally do. Whereas, obviously, when you go to a final, especially more recent, more modern finals, it does tend to be much more cagey, much more safe at first and not really playing the way that teams have got there all the way to the final. That final, you know, 3-1 it finished. That was There's only been six finals since then which have had four or more goals in. Yeah. It, it was a, a relative rarity at the time, but much more so since then. Obviously, Liverpool's, yeah, would have, with Milan would have been the next game which even got close to that sort of number of goals. So not not a, a normal occurrence, not a normal team. I love the, the way that they used their wing-backs at that time as well. And it was a real feature of German football for quite a long time around their big wide diamond midfield and then the big wide wing-backs that they had with the sweeper. So quite a, quite a very different, iconic sort of setup in that country compared to like sometimes where we look at Serie A or how Premier League teams were at that mm. sort of era as well. Um, my second team is nothing like any of the ones we've discussed so far because they had no longevity. They had no real cohesion going into the tournament and they were not winners at all. But they were one of my favourite teams to watch, partly on account of the players that they had involved, but also mostly because of the way they were set up and how they sort of worked between themselves, which I'd never really seen in, in the same sort of way. So this is the 2006 Argentina squad for the World Cup under Jose Pekerman. Um And what we basically had here was a normal, let's say, 4-4-2 with kind of a narrow number 10 from the left, let's say. Um, but it was 
very, very skewed. You would have Juan Pablo Sorin basically doing the entire left flank himself. Mm. Gabriel Heinze then pushing over as sort of the left-sided centre-back, Ayala and Scaloni, the others, and everything would then be tilted. And it was really the first time that I'd seen that kind of variation between fullbacks on this kind of a scale. And also it was the first time that I'd really seen, which at the time was Esteban Cambiaso and Javier Macerano, these two really deep midfielders who had such specific roles in possession. Like out of possession, obviously when they're defending, we're talking about Maxi Rodriguez, who works really, really hard. Javier Macerano was the best defensive midfielder for a period after this point. And Esteban Cambiaso, who was immense as an all-round midfielder. So they were very difficult to bypass anyway. But when it became Argentina in possession, they were the most absurdly ridiculous patient defence you would ever see and just pass it between them. And it didn't matter how long it was for until one of those two defensive midfielders was able to get in a space to receive the ball on the turn. Inevitably, it would be Cambiasso because Mascherano obviously not quite as uh, technically proficient as Cambiasso was, certainly not at that point anyway. And his role really was to continue running all the time, dragging the, either the forwards or the attacking midfielders out of the way and letting the little spaces for Cambiasso to drop into. And then he would take a little pass from the defence and then they would be going forward. And in attack, then you've got Regelme, ridiculous creative uh, a play called Lionel Messi coming off the bench pretty creative Pablo Ayman as well uh, Javier Saviola up front who was I absolutely loved him I loved Saviola in his early Damn. years like, and this was probably Damn. as close as he got to being able to show his peak on a regular basis at a big big level so this this whole team was really really interestingly built from a tactical perspective and as I say some of the players individually I thought were immense yeah this is a great squad like, when you look up and down this squad, there are just so many names that just jump out. Ayala, you mentioned, amazing for Valencia for so long. Juan Pablo Sarin, the mad hair, could just dominate an entire left flank by himself. Uh, Colaccini's in there, but we'll we'll move past him. Uh, Cambiaso, Gabriela Heinze, Javier Saviola, Javier Mascherano, Hernan Crespo, still only 30 years of age at that point, a goal machine, Raquel May, a young Carlos Tevez, Scaloni, who's obviously now the, the World Cup winning manager of the Argentine national team, Rodrigo Palacio, who it, it, it I always found it weird that it never really clicked for him in Europe. Like he, he had a couple of bites at the apple and it never really never really clicked for him. Like he was at Genoa, he was okay, he was at Inter, he was okay, but it never fully worked the way it had from at Boca. Um whether that was that he he waited too long to come across, I don't know. Uh, Gabriel Melito, who was a brilliant defender until his, his knee exploded. Imar, uh, Maxi Rodriguez, a very, very young Lionel Messi. Uh, and Lucho Gonzalez, who was really, really good. Like, really, really good. But it's funny, you mentioned two things here. You mentioned the tilt. So Raquel May moving centrally off that left flank the back four becoming the back three. Maxi playing kind of a narrow right side, but playing out to in as opposed to, sorry, in to out as opposed to Raquel May who would play out to in. And Serene just basically taking the whole left wing. That's very reminiscent of Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, the early edition, where Messi would play from the right, but he would move in field. And Danny Alves would have the whole right flank to himself and the defence would just would, would adjust. Puyol, Piquet, 
and Abidal would all just shift slightly across. So when people talk about, oh, you know, Pep Guardiola invented this, I mean, you can go back and find that this won't have been the first team to do it. It'll have been maybe the first that we saw do it on a major stage. But those little things, obviously Barca did it slightly differently, but the basis of it can be found years, three years here before Pep did it at Barca. The other thing you mentioned is the centre-backs just knocking the ball between themselves, putting their foot on the ball, drawing the attackers in, and then pinging it between them. What do people talk about the Zerbi's team doing? Drawing people in, centre-backs very comfortable in possession, being able to put their foot on the ball, not panicking, play the pass sidewards, get it back, wait and wait and wait until the right forward pass is available. But here we are in the mid-90s, or the mid-2000s, and we have prime example of this being done on the biggest stage. So, you know, so much of what we see now is is merely recycled. Like, there's very little in the way of actual tactical innovation now. You can trace most things back 5, 10, 15, 40 years and find examples of it. And you name two really good examples here of things that people have been lauded for to much higher degrees late on. But Joseph Heckerman was was doing these things and, and would have been doing these things long before this team, you know, when he was manager of the Argentine underage team, when he was a, a youth coach. He, he was, these are things he would have been working on and he would have gotten them from elsewhere as well. Yeah, I mean, we know by now, or we should know by now, football is very much a wheel. There'll be little tweaks and there'll be changes based on, you know, change physicality of players. But most things have been done before. It's just about mm-hmm. finding the right time for them, the adaptability of your personnel for them, how suited they are for, for the modern game and the league that you're in. Because you know what? A lot of Pep Guardiola's stuff came from Mexico when he started yeah. coaching. Yeah. That's where he really, you know, he said himself, he, that's where he really picked up so much of the build from the back, from the centre-back splitting, everything of that, that all came from Mexico. None of those teams or those coaches at the time are necessarily heralded, but because he's put it together in a particular way, Pep is, and and it's been very, very successful for him. But they're not his ideas. He's not just plucked them out of the air or had a dream one night or anything like that. And Jose Pekerman, exactly the same. He would have taken them from elsewhere. There'd be things, ingredients you take on board, and you find a way to make them work for your team. Unfortunately, they didn't work well enough for this team. Um, quarterfinals, they went out to Germany on penalties. They were very, very good to watch. I thought that that world, yeah, cup, they, were. Um, yeah they were Argentina. I thought they had a really, really good chance of winning, but you know, penalty shootout, you go out, there you go. Yeah, you, you don't want to do penalties against the Germans. That's that's basically a hard and fast rule. Um, for my third team, I will stick with international football. I'll go 10 years before yours in the 1996 European Championship, European Championships, where Germany won and the Germany team is the one I want to talk about because this to me is is the most enjoyable team I've watched at international level from a tactical point of view. Um again, as with the the Dortmund team, it's a it's a, a back three with wing backs and a sweeper. You've got Matthias Zammer as the sweeper. Now Cole, uh, Jürgen Kohler started the tournament and got hurt nine or ten minutes into the first game and Marcus Babel came in and this actually amplified what they were able to do. So you've got Zammer as the sweeper, Babel as the right-side centre-back, and Thomas Helmer as the left-side centre-back. What's interesting about both of those gentlemen is not only were they great centre-backs, they were also very, very good full-backs. 
Then you've got Stefan Reuter as the right wing back and Christian Ziga as the left wing back. You've got Dieter Els as the holding midfielder, Thomas Hassler as the other central midfielder, Andy Muller as the 10. And then up front, when everybody was fit, the plan was Freddy Bobic, who was a really, really good striker in the Bundesliga, and Jurgen Klinsmann, who's an all time great. So what made this team really interesting to me is how quickly they could shift between shapes and do so with the exact same personnel. So you would see at times Zammer step into midfield, Muller pull to the right and Hassler go to the left. The the wingbacks would drop to fullback and you'd have a 4-4-2 with two natural fullbacks in their positions, Reuter and Ziga, two centre-backs with Babel and Helmer and then a double pivot of Elts and Zammer. Everybody's in a position that they're more than comfortable in. They could also do it as a box midfield where Hassler and Muller would play as dual tens. The double pivot would stay the same and the back four would stay the same. Sometimes what you'd get is Elts would drop into centre-back next to Zammer. Babel would go right back. Helmer would go left back. Freund and Ziga would play as wingers. And Hassler and Muller would play as a midfield too. Now, what that allowed them to do was that if they got transitioned on, there was always a back four that they could fall into. They could fall into a shape where players were in positions they were comfortable in. Dieter Els played 40-odd games for Werder Bremen as a, def- a centre-back over his career. He was comfortable in that role. It was a bit like dropping Fabinho back in. Fab is... Fab, to me, is the closest thing I've seen to Dieter Els since Dieter Els. And Dieter Els was the, the player who made me fall in love with this specific position. Because of how fluid he was at moving from one position to another, because of his ability to take positions where the, the defensive line could call their defensive line off of him. So if he's moving left, they could shift left. If he moved right, they'd move right. If he dropped, they would drop. If he stepped out, they would step out. And it was all in lockstep. It was all very in sync and coherent. And what's incredible about this team is the amount of injuries they had through the tournament would likely have finished anyone else. Klinsman got injured twice. Bobic was injured. Um, Kohler was injured. Freund got injured. Reuter got injured. Freund, who was a natural midfielder, played wingback in one game, as did Stefan Kuntz. In the final, Andy Muller was missing because he was suspended. I think Reuter might have missed the final as well. I should remember because I talked about this recently on Two Footed. Um, but this this team just had an ability to to shape shift depending on what they needed. Like if a team was attacking down their right hand side, Reuter could step out to meet the you know meet the attack. Babel could slot across. Zamran and uh, Helmer would, would just become a back, uh, a two-man centre-back pairing, and Ziga would tuck in on the left-hand side. And then they could do the other, do it the other way. Ziga could push out, Helmer could go left-back. You could have Zamran and Babel as a pairing and Reuter at right-back. And they were just really, really fun to watch as well. Like, again, in transition, you'd often see Els just drop in between the two centre-backs. The wing-backs would be wing-backs, and Zamran would just sit in a defensive midfield. And they could play that way as well. And just having players like Marco Boda, um, Stefan Kuntz, uh, Thomas Struntz, um, I've mentioned them already, uh, Freund, 
having those type of guys who could play two and three positions just gave them great flexibility. Like Marco Boda could be left side centre back, left wing back, left back in a four, left side centre midfield, in a midfield two. He could play as a six or he could play up front. He could literally play anywhere along the left side of the pitch. And Thomas Struntz was sort of the right-footed version of that. And having those type of guys who aren't stars, there were better players left out of the squad. But these were the guys who were more valuable to the squad. And the other thing to note with this squad as well is that despite the fact that there were some some mega egos in this squad, Zammer, Muller, maybe the biggest ego in the squad, Klinsman, Hassler, Mario Basler, who was a squad player who barely played but didn't kick off at all. All of them parked their egos for the good of this team. When the Dutch team, which was super talented at the time, made up large of that Ajax team that won the European Cup, they basically shot themselves in the foot and ended up wrecking their own tournament. Everybody remembers the, the Davids, or should remember, the Davids incident where he, he fucked off and went home. The, the Germans parked all of that. And a big part of that was Bertie Vokes made the decision not to bring Lothar Matthias back into the national team. And Bertie Vokes went into this tournament literally on the brink of the sack because in 92, they got into the final and been embarrassed losing to Denmark, having already gotten hammered by the Dutch in the group stage, but getting a little bit fortunate by the draw. In 94, they got knocked out by Bulgaria, which again was an embarrassment to the Germans. And they hadn't looked particularly good to that tournament. And there was a bunch of fallout and a bunch of turmoil. You had Matthias Sammer and Stefan Effenberg having fallings out with the fans. Effenberg, another one, not included in this squad, despite absolutely being one of the best midfielders they had available. But... Bertie Vokes, to me, this is a coaching masterclass. Go and look at the lineups the Germans put out game after game in this tournament and see how much change he had to deal with. And yet the result was always the same. The same shape, the same system, the same style of play and the same result. They won and won and won and won. It didn't really matter who they came up against. They just found ways to overcome them. Yeah, relentless is probably the best word. And, you know, a lot of words used to describe them along the same way for like decades afterwards in major tournaments, machine-like and just relentless and always find a way and the mentality and everything else. It was it was just inbuilt in them for a long, long time. And, you know, part of the, the big, long-lasting manner of that started with one of these tournaments and continued into these tournaments as around their peak. Um, I actually, just by coincidence, nearly picked their opponents from uh, this final Czech Republic as one of my teams, of, of my five teams. It was, I think, probably one of the earliest um, tournaments where I remember seeing players. Hello, I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m. 
Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable there every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye. Of, a, let's say, a, you know, a foreign and strange nation who actually had been able to watch recently in some of the other leagues because it was not too long before this other league started to be shown a little bit more. And then, of course, we had a few of them move over to England or mm. move to other leagues very, very soon after this tournament. So... It is quite a fond one to look back on the tournament as a whole. Uh, yeah, I, I love that Euros, especially like because yeah. remember the Croatian team in that tournament as well. And like the the 94 World Cup, we'd gotten Bulgaria and we got Romania and Sweden had kind of re-emerged themselves in 92. But this was, you know, another big step for them. And that's that's what I miss about international football. It's t- obviously things are totally different now with the internet and YouTube and whatever else, Scout all the different services you can go and watch games on. But back then, you didn't know a lot about these, you know, Eastern European teams. They were still dealing with political fallout after the breakup of uh, Yugoslavia and the, the separation of the Czech, of Czechoslovakia. They, they'd had so really good teams in the 90 World Cup, Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. And then there'd been the splits and you were sort of waiting to see what would happen. And in this World Cup, we get the Czechs. Were, they were like the, the big surprise of the tournament. But the Croatians were so much fun. And, you know, like the, the Davor Sukar goal against um, Denmark is is always the, the standout moment of the tournament for me. That gorgeous cross-field ball, the incredible first touch, strolls through on goal as if this is a, a kickabout with his mates, and then chips the guy who's arguably the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, as if he's nothing, just makes a mockery of him. Now, I knew who Davros Zucker was because he'd been at Real Madrid, or he was going to Real Madrid, I think, that summer, but because Capello had gone to Real and there was Bobby Robson at Barca, Capello at Real, both of them stocking up to, to go head-to-head, obviously. And that's how I got to know who, who Davros Zucker was, but I didn't know a lot of these other players that were in that. Um, that that Croatian team, the same with this this Czech team. Like I had no idea who Pavel Nedved was, and all of a sudden, you know, he, he, this guy is really interesting. And a couple of years later, he's an absolute megastar in in the in, in Syria. How much would a team who didn't really achieve too much have to do? to make it into your, let's say, not top five list, because obviously they're not in your list, but let's say top 10 or just one of these memorable teams. Because, yeah, the Croatia ones, the Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, sorry, from this one, earlier ones of like the Soviet Union from 88, even mm. from, from reaching the Euros final. These teams didn't achieve much, but they had the players and the personality and the memories of of teams that just stick in my mind like for you know, decades afterwards. So... Sometimes it's just a thing or a game. Sometimes it can be literally just one player. Alexei Mikalichenko is a player I have absolutely no affiliation to, but we'll never, ever forget having watched and seen and just seeing the things that he did. And then he rocks up at Rangers a few years later and it suddenly got an extra reason to stick in your brain for no apparent reason. Sometimes these just happen in football and it's you know, it's fun. That's why we do these pods and talk back on them afterwards. But how much for you 
needs to happen for them to stick there. No, I mean, the, 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 the Yugoslav team of, of 1990 is, would probably rank in my top 10. And it is all, all retrospective having, you know, watched more of the players and watched more of their games from around then and rewatched that World Cup multiple times. Um, you know, you look through that squad, Darko Panchev, the, the plunderer of goals for Red Star, uh, Dragan Stojkovic, one of the best European players of all time, but always overlooked. You've got a young, a very young Alan Boxic. You've got a very young Prozanecki, a very young Robert Yarny, a very young Dejan Savicevic, a very young Davor Sukar. Like some of them didn't play a whole lot at this point, but they are all in that squad. That is, that squad in, in some ways would shape a lot of what happened around Europe over the next couple of years. Um, there's, there's a lot of great teams that are, that didn't didn't win like the England team from ninety as well. I I love that team. I think there's there's great players in that team, and they were really well managed and they played a good brand of football. The Irish team from nineteen ninety and from eighty eight is is historic from from our point of view here because we, we've achieved nothing in terms of international football, but you know we have moments in our history that we're so incredibly proud proud of from a footballing perspective. Beating England at the 88 Euros is one of them. Ray Houghton's goal, Ronnie Whelan's wonder goal against the Russians. Um, just, just incredible in 88. In 90, where we, we draw with the English, Kevin Sheedy scores that amazing goal. And there's a song that's sung since, Who Put the Up Ball in the English Net? Um, drawing with the Dutch, who were the reigning European champions, and obviously drawing with Egypt, where we should beat them. But this, this. But then we we beat Romania on penalties in the in the knockout game, and again, that's historic for us because you know it, it's our first time at the World Cup, and now we're into the quarterfinals and we're playing Italy, and we actually think we can beat them. And obviously, they get a spawny goal, but it is what it is. But the the the, the Irish team that will be top for me is the, the 1994 team, which beat Italy. And that would be in my top 10. That Irish team of 94 is in my top 10. You had a young Gary Kelly, a young Jason McAteer, and a young Phil Babb, who I know we all, you know, went on to laugh about, but they were not, they were the three amigos, these three young lads that were coming in to refresh the Irish squad. You had Roy Keane, was arguably the best midfielder in the Premier League already at that point. Andy Townsend, you had Steve Staunton, you had uh, Dennis Irwin, obviously, and you had Paul McGrath playing at a level that very few centre-backs anywhere ever have ever reached. What he did in that World Cup, especially in that opening game against the Italians, against Baggio, who's the best player in the world, and the fact that we beat them in that opening game at Giant Stadium, which, like, New York is a city built on Irish and Italian people. And we outnumbered them by five to one in that stadium. And it, it remains the high point of, of Irish, we call it soccer, Irish football. It remains the high point. And, you know, like we haven't accomplished what, what England have accomplished. We, we don't go deep into tournaments. We don't get to every tournament. We haven't won a World Cup. We don't have a litany of world-class players that we can we can regale back to. But that team in 94 with Keane at his best, Irwin at his best, and McGrath. And I will maintain 
that those three are in, if you want to pick an all-time Premier League eleven, those three are in it. And we're a tiny little country. And for me, Keane is the best defensive midfielder the league has seen. I would put McGrath as one of the top two centre-backs along with Virgil. And Dennis Irwin's the best left-back the league has seen. Uh, you can take Ashley Cole and you can keep him. Dennis Irwin is the best full-back the league has seen, right-back or left-back. So the Irish team in 94, a long-winded answer to your question, is in my top 10. Thank you. <laughs> so basically, to get into Dave's top 10, you have to be Irish. There we go. Yeah. Now, now we... I have to show win stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they have to be um, standards. <laughs> so I'm now going to pivot from um, that discussion of teams who, who don't necessarily have to achieve stuff to one who achieved absolutely everything. Um, I'm going for Spain 2008, 2012. A um, couple of reasons here which obviously overlap. One of just how good they were. Two of the unbelievable style how much that changed from what came before. Three, the fact that that's where I was all during this period is is a good chunk of the years that I was living in Spain for. So to be very, very close to that and you know, at the time working in football around that and everything, it was just it was quite bizarre. Just, just focus quite on that for a minute. What, what was it like to be in Spain during those tournaments? Like, what, what was it like to be there not at the tournament, but in in the homeland of the nation that are so far and away the best team in the world. That's that is undeniably the greatest international team of all time. What was it like to be there? What was the experience like? Do you know what? I, I often talk about this to you know some of the people I was over there with at the time, and they don't really remember it like this because you know they're Spanish and they're caught up in it or whatever. But I do, and I remember exactly how it was. I didn't live in like Madrid or a big city like that. I lived, you know, out in the backwaters of a very, very old style Spanish old mentality sort of uh, town within a city, within a uh, municipality. It was more or less people were aware that there was a major tournament going on during the group stage. I kid you not. Like I would go and watch every single game. Obviously that's, that's what I was doing. And I would either watch it at home or I'd watch it in the bars or you know, have have somewhere else set up to go and watch it during the day. But even the Spain games during the group stage, there were just people going about their day, had no idea Spain was playing. A lot of them. There is a huge, huge population of Spain which supports Real Madrid or Barcelona and has no idea about anything else. A lot of people will support Barcelona or, or Real Madrid and their local club, wherever they happen to live, but not in an everyday, every single minute of everyday way. Like lots of people do, obviously. You still have you know, the ultras and you still have like fanatical supporters and all the rest of it. But I'm talking about just in any old, you know, this Spanish equivalent of, let's say, um, a York or a Rochdale or a Hartlepool or just any general normal town. People will still support their team, but they won't necessarily be absolutely consumed by the team that they support all the time. And the national team, this was many, many times over. It's It's you know, we're, we're probably speaking mainly, I suppose, to English or English-speaking audience, so it's a bit difficult to draw parallels exactly. But because of the factions of Spain, the political ramifications of different areas, how, how very, very divided it has been for a long time, the Spanish national team was not an identity for a long, long, long period. Mm. And over there at this point, where we're talking about from the start of this team, 2008, you got to remember the same group of players, more or less, a couple of years previously at the World Cup, were rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. There are only a couple of changes made, like to the the real core of 
the squad. And this Spain side went out in the last 16 to uh, France, would it have been? I think it was. Like, and fair enough, that was a good France team, but it wasn't a good Spain team. It wasn't, it wasn't what they were going to become. It was the beginnings of it. They were starting to put a few things together, but it still wasn't. And then all of a sudden in the knockouts, because like previous to the, the tournament, like Raul had been left out, you know, that was the big talking mm. point heading into, into the actual tournament in 2008 itself. Raul was left out. Barcelona were obviously, um, had been this amazingly successful team already and, and were looking like one of the best club teams around. That in itself always makes it a very, very politically charged thing. How many? Real Madrid players you pick, how many Barcelona players you pick, all the rest of it. But this Spain side going into this 2008, there, there were obviously some Barcelona influences, let's say, but there wasn't most of the team made up of them or anything. It was like Puyol, Iniesta, Xavi. That was basically the Barcelona contingent who played the biggest role in that first tournament. And it wasn't a tournament which straight away captured everyone's imagination. It wasn't one where absolutely everybody was behind Spain and knew what was going to happen. They were going to go all the way. Nothing at all. And anyone who tells you any different either was in a very, very different city to me or are lying because it wasn't. I I spoke to so many people during that period who had no idea of the days that Spain even played until it got to around the knockouts. Maybe let's say quarterfinals. Suddenly at that point, people start to take notice and people start to organize actual going to the match parties and where they're all going to congregate after the match and beforehand, you know how it is in Spain when they, any of the clubs win a, uh, a trophy, they go to their part of the city and they celebrate there, whether it's in the, uh, the fountain or whatever it is that they have in each, each particular team, people start to do this for some of the matches around, you know, pre kickoff, you'd go there and you'd have your few drinks, you're there in the streets and then you go to wherever you're watching the match. And afterwards you pile back to this, basically these these communal areas in the towns and everything and celebrate the victory and be there until three in the morning kind of thing. That's when it started, but not beforehand. Um, as it went on, obviously, it got more and more, I don't want to use like, you know, like raucous or rowdy or anything like that. It was obviously by the, by, by the very nature of emotions were getting higher, but it was just excitement really because it was so alien to Spain as a national team to be this good, this far into a competition this real chance of winning. Spain as a national team were crap for a long, long time, even though they had really good players. They just never had any kind of togetherness, no no kind of team building, really. Like I say, it was so, so fractured. You talk about the England team when it was like, you know, Liverpool and Man United and Chelsea were all at the height of their rivalries and how the, you know, the Lampard's goals, Gerard debate was ongoing and there were always the little cliques in the national team squad. It was worse in Spain. It was yeah. always worse in Spain. And then there's all, somehow, yeah, like you, you mentioned that political divide, that that dislike of the of the Catalans and the Catalan oh. dislike of everybody else, the the same with the Basque. That's much that goes much deeper than, you know, when oh, I play for Man United and you play for Liverpool. Hugely so. And not even just that, but you know, Spain has no central national team stadium. The the national team mm-hmm. is effectively the property of the people and it goes around the country playing in different games but there would be like riots and and real discord in the stands while Spain are playing when the ball was at the feet of a player who plays for a rival club you know if you're playing a qualifier in Sevilla for example and one of the Real Madrid players are on the ball they would be booed by their own Spanish <laughs> national team and and this would be like a constant ongoing battle to you know who's going to be named in the squad who who gets the nod I remember I think it was 2006. It might have been before that, but there was like like headlines complaining about Joaquin either being in the team or not being in the team because he was a real talented young player, obviously, but he was going to be in the team at the expense of someone like Guti. 
and it was like all the pro Madrid papers that he has to be, he plays for Real Madrid. Even if he's not in the team all the time for Real Madrid, he's still one of the best players in the world because he plays for Real Madrid. Joaquin was actually playing and actually playing ridiculously well. And there was such massive pressure to keep Aguti or whoever it was at the time in the team just because of who he played for at club level. There was real, real discord for such a long time. And like I say, when it finally got to this sort of point where they're, they're finally going through like against you know, decent sides, I think probably the, the Italy quarterfinal was the main one where people sort of obviously started realising we could do this when they got a penalty shootout. And they had sort of similar anti-penalty uh, feelings than England or English people did for a while yeah. as well, obviously. Um, and, and Spain obviously won that shootout. And suddenly it was, oh, actually, we could go ahead. We could go and do this. You know, it's not necessarily going to be the trickiest tie to get to the final because they played Russia in the group stage, absolutely hammered them, and then played Russia in the semis again. So that was probably when I remember it being a real thing. Spain could win, and we're actually behind this for once. It's funny that you mentioned just how crap Spain had been for years, because I always remember in the early 90s, you obviously had that Johan Cruyff dream team at Barca, but you also had a really, really good Real Madrid team at the time. And this is the era of three foreigners. So there can only be three foreigners per per club, which is how Michael Laudrup ends up getting forced out of Barcelona and goes to Real. But the majority of those teams were made up of Spanish players, and yet it never translated on the international stage. They were always just an enormous disappointment. And a, a lot of it is because the players just couldn't get on with each other or couldn't be seen to get on with each other whether they did privately or not, they, they had to be seen to be at odds with each other. And in this spell from, from 08 to 2012, it just seems like maybe Carlos Puyol and Iker Casillas as, as the respective leaders of the, you know, the Barca and Real camps came together and were like, look, we need to just put an end to this while we do this. While we have this opportunity, we need to just focus in and, and be united as one. And and the results are, are staggering, like to win the Euros, win the World Cup, and then win the Euros again. And obviously it all comes crashing down in, in 2014 in Brazil, but that that's irrelevant to, to what they were and what they achieved. To win three nas- major international tournaments in a row, including a World Cup, is phenomenal. Um, what an amazing team. And, and the way it evolved over the time, like Marco Senna obviously was the the holding midfielder in 08, he'd only become naturalised a couple of years before. And then he gets replaced by Busquets. And then you get that midfield, which is Busquets, Alonso, Iniesta, and Xavi as a midfield four with, you know, Sesk and, and David Silva at times playing as a front two and nobody able to take the ball off them. And the fact that they did it with multiple managers, obviously Luis Aragonés and then Vincente del Bosque, just to be able to this, but the Joaquin thing, you mentioned him, he won 51 caps between 02 and 07 and then never played for the national team again. He was 26 when he won his last international cap and he was incredible for years after that. And it's such a shame that he missed out on that because he, he was tremendous. But one player I noticed that was in the 08 squad, um, only only had three caps, got them all that year, uh, was Ruben De La Red, who I always really enjoyed watching play. And obviously he faints the following year or later that year, maybe it might have been later that year after the Euros. 
and it's the end of his career. They discover a heart problem and he's never able to come back from it. He'd been linked with Liverpool around that time as well. And uh, unfortunately, just it, his career was over. But yeah, that Spanish team, absolutely. Nobody can, can make it a real argument. I don't think that there's ever been an international team of that level. Will we do one more? Because I don't think we'll get to five each because we've been, we're over the hour now. Yeah, you- I mean, I'm happy just to mention a fourth one because it links so much into what we've just been talking about here because that was the Barcelona 0809 sextuple all so, across that sort of period. Perfect. Um, They're my fifth team on my list anyway, okay. so I'm glad you have them. Who's your fifth one then? Give me your fifth one. Um, it's the Ajax 1995 team. The, the Louis van Gaal-led three diamond three thing of beauty. Yeah. Yeah, the three diamond three was. I, I still struggle to comprehend how well it did. Now I'm not sure actually if you tried to do that now the balance would would quite work. But at the mm. time it was just stupidly sensational. Like the space, the understanding of space that those players had, how you could how you could utilize basically three central defenders, but also three forwards. Two of them who were outside wingers, not inside forwards, but actual wingers on their side stretching the pitch so much and still be completely dominant with the ball. I mean, like I say, obviously a different type of game, different era, physicality and all the rest of it, but the technical level of those players, utterly unsurpassed. And yet, physically, in terms of speed, the movement, the appreciation of space, timing of the runs, just just scintillating to watch. I mean, again, we talk about players individually, Yari Lippmann and Edgar Davids, Clarence Seedorf, Mark Overmars, who I absolutely loved as a younger player. Um, just some of the absolute best. A few yeah. players who later on I couldn't stand watching and a few players who, like we've mentioned already, became a bit of a joke, like Winston Bukhada, his career trajectory from one of the best young defenders in, in probably in world football, but certainly in European football, to player who just did not care about playing was astonishing to watch, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, a young Kanu, a young Cliver, Yari Lippmann, and one of the most intelligent players I've ever seen play football. Just an unbelievable team. Really, really impressive. And especially the way that they went on and achieved success in the way that they did. Even that season, they won the the European Cup. They didn't lose a single game in, in the area of the Vizier either. Mm. And, you know, it's the area of the Vizier. Okay, fine. But it's still the area of the Vizier entire season. And they didn't lose a game. Yeah, I mean, there were that team so well balanced. I mean, Michael Reitziger, great defender. Frank De Boer on the other side, great defender. And then you've got Daly Blind as your centre back, and Frank Reichardt in front of him as the holding midfielder. But those two could swap; they could drop into a, a two. They could just make it work, whatever came their way. Sadorf and Davids, I mean, Jesus wept. Oh, unbelievable players. Finita George, you mentioned Overmars. Like so much of that team came through their own academy or was picked up from smaller clubs in the Netherlands. Uh, there was obviously Kanu Fanidi. They they just went and found them playing in Nigeria. Um, just an amazing team. What is horrendous for that club though is how many of those players they lost for nothing. Mm-hmm. Reitziger went on a free. Uh, I believe the two De Boers left on freeze. Yeah, David's yeah. left on a free, Lipmanen left on a free, Bogart left on a free, Clivert left on a free. I think Seedorf and Overmars are the only ones they got real money for. Now, they might have got money for the De Boers and they got some money for Van der Sar. But to lose that many players, that many elite 
young talents on freeze was incredible. Seedorf obviously would leave after this game and would go to uh, to Sampdoria first and then Real Madrid. And obviously Ajax get back to the final the following year. And it's in many ways the same team, except Kanu is into the starting lineup. Uh, Kiki Masamba has come in for Overmars. Ronald De Boer has dropped from the nine spot into the midfield. And um, Reichardt has retired, so Frank De Boer has moved to centre-back and Bogart could come in. Sonny Sully started at right-back in the final because uh, Reitzig was injured, but there was there was just so many great players at Ajax at that time, and that team are, are genuinely amazing. Um, my last team then, I'll, I'll do this quickly, is the um, Sven-Goran Eriksson-led Lazio of the late 90s from, say, 98 to 2001. Uh, the first season of that, just, just to give you an idea of the, the transfers that this team were doing, they signed Christian Vieri, Marcelo Salas, Ivan Della Pena, Fernando Couto, Sinisa Mihailovic, Sergio Conceição, and Dejan Stankovic all in one year. And that year they win the Cup Winners' Cup. The following year, which is the year that really... I, I, I adore. Um, Christian Vieri leaves. They sign Juan Sebastian Veron, uh, Diego Simeone, Kenneth Anderson, Simone Inzaghi, and Nestor Sensini. They win the league. They win the Coppa Italia, and they win the um, the Super Cup. And then the following year, they they sell uh, Almeida and Conceição. Both of them go to Parma. They bring in Hernan Crespo. Claudio Lopez, who I loved in that Valencia team. Angelo Peruzzi arrives from Inter. He'd made his name, obviously, at, at Juve. They bring in Karol Paborski, who'd been at United and gone to Benfica and now ends up here, and Stefano Fiore. And this, to me, is the best midfield I've ever seen. This is the most perfectly balanced midfield I've ever seen. Stankovic on the right, Nedved on the left, Simeone and Veron as a double pivot. Conce Sauer's is gone, so they don't have that wing option that they'd had the year before. But you've still got Ivan Della Pena, you've still got Lucas Kasterman, you've still got Dino Baggio and Karol Paborski. This team is perfectly balanced. That midfield, that's the best box midfield I've ever seen. Simeone and Veron is the two. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted, but I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super-fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48-hour no-obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes and games consoles. Visit libertyshield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout.
Stankovic and Nedved above them. And they they were just perfect. They could rotate rotate into any shape. They could go four four three. That night, that oh two thousand thousand one team with um, Crespo and Lopez starting up front, Salas as the third forward, and then Simone and Zaghi and an, uh, an aging Fabrizio Ravanelli coming off the bench were just incredible. They they unfortunately finished third in Serie A that year, and then everything started to fall apart. Um. Ericsson, Ericsson had announced that he was going to take over as England manager. They were on their way, I think, to winning back-to-back titles. He was due to take over the England team in the summer of 2001. He announced in the October he'd be leaving. Things got a bit weird. He ended up getting pushed out the door in the January and they ended up finishing third, but they were so, so good. So, so good and so deep. Like, you've got Peruzzi and Marcagiani in goal. Defenders, you've got Paolo Negro, who was great, Nestor Sansini, Sinisa Mihailovic, Alessandro Nesta, uh, Giuseppe Favala, Fernando Couto. Like, you've just got great, great defenders, loads of great midfielders, loads of great forwards. Like, that team is so strong. And then it all fell apart for them because financially, they just overstretched themselves so much that they ended up having to sell off, you know, Nedved went, Veron went, Salas went. They tried to go big again. They brought in Yapstam. They brought in Mendieta. Mendieta didn't work. Stam didn't want to be there. He didn't want to leave United, but he'd fallen out with Ferguson. And it all just fell to shit. Then after that, Nesta goes, Crespo goes, because the finances fall out from underneath them. And they're very lucky that they didn't go out of business. But there was a run there where Lazio were just one of the best teams around. And unfortunately, only the one league title, but also, you know, an Italian Cup and a, and a Cup Winners Cup is nothing to sniff at. But yeah, they'd be my they'd be my fifth team then. Yeah, very memorable side, very big side, big money, big plans, mm. everything. And then the drop-off that you mentioned and the timing, I think, is most accurately summed up by in Europe that season. Because that was back in the time when the Champions League decided that the best course of action would be to have not one, but two group stages. Yeah, um, Lazio in the first one, Second behind Arsenal, but only on, on um, you know, whatever it was. I think it was head to head at the time or something like that. So they beat Arsenal at home, lost to Arsenal away, but both of them through very, very easily. Again, this was an Arsenal team, which around that time was basically one of the best in Europe anyway. Uh, second half of the group stage. This is a year where, um, Lazio were ranked fifth heading into the season in the, in the UEFA coefficients start off with a game against Anderlecht and lose to Thomas Rosinski scoring late on. And basically that was within a month of, of Spence announcing his exit. So in between those two group stages is when he announced it. And uh, yeah, it, it fell apart very, very quickly after that. I think it was Leeds and Anderlecht both beat them. I, I think they failed to beat Real Madrid as well. So it was very, very quickly a case of wheels off and it was done. It's a shame that Sven's time with England didn't work out the way he wanted it to because he had a very clear vision for what he wanted England to be. And unfortunately, there was just one or two players who sort of had to be in the team, but he didn't really want them in the team. And one of them is Frank Lampard. What he wanted as his midfield was Beckham off the right, Gerrard off the left, and a Scholes, Owen Hargreaves double pivot. Scholes as the dictator, as the Veron, Hargreaves as the ratter, the ball winner, as a Simeone. 
Beckham and Gerrard able to play out, but also come in field and dictate the game as his two number 10s. And unfortunately, Lampard's form really took off and it mandated that Lampard be in the team that threw the balance everywhere. Michael Carrick was coming along as well and he was one that Sven really liked and, and it probably would have been the fifth midfielder. But unfortunately, as good and all as a player as he was, and he, and he obviously did very well for England, if Frank Lampard hadn't been involved, I think England, if everybody had been fit, now they went to 2002 World Cup obviously with a bunch of injuries, um, but if they'd gone with what Sven wanted, I do always wonder because you had Michael Owen just explosive at the time. You had Shearer, still great. You had the bones of a very good defence with Saul Campbell and a bunch of young centre-backs. You had a very experienced Gary Neville. Ashley Cole was really coming into his own. The goalkeeper situation wasn't ideal, but England were very, very strong at that point. I always wondered if it wasn't for Lampard. It's not to blame Lampard. It's not his fault. But public pressure mandated that he had to be in the team. And I always wonder if Sven had stuck to his guns and gone with the midfield he wanted. Now, Hargreaves' injuries would have fucked it anyway, but there was there was, there was was possibility for England there. 2 4 6 might have been their window with him. And obviously it just didn't. It didn't, uh, it didn't come to life. Anyway, we will leave it there for today. Is there anything else that you want to touch on? This, this pod, we don't know when it's going to go out. It's just one to have for when we have some time to fill. Um, so a little bit of nostalgia for the, for the good folks. But is there anything else you'd like to mention or any, any other uh, honourable mention team? There were a few honourable mention teams. I'm not going to go into years and players and all the rest of it, but just for the hell of it, um, Fiorentina, there have been a couple of teams down yes. the years. We've, we've spoken about a couple of them. Um, I'm going to have to mention that. Toldo, there we go. Toldo. Toldo, Fiorentina, go from there. That's where that's where one of them nearly, nearly made it. Um, I was having a little bit of a look at a couple of very, very smaller teams as well, just because uh, back in the day when you're younger and you're playing computer games, and some of the first ones that I played, I still look out for the teams now. So, um, hi, Wickham and Halifax. Um, we'll get into those another day. Would that be the Martin O'Neill era, Wickham? <laughs> it could have been 2000, uh, sorry, 1990, I can't remember now, two, mid 90s, three, maybe. Yeah, that'd be Martin O'Neill when they, when they came up through the divisions a little bit. I think yeah, that's Martin O'Neill there before he went to Leicester. Um, yeah, before he went to Leicester. Um, I'm likewise, I, I would. I would have the Middlesbrough team that got got promoted and then brought in, you know, like Nicky Barmby and Janino and Emerson and Ravinelli. And I know they got relegated and they lost two cup finals. But I've, since then, I've always had a soft spot for Borough and I always check for the results. Um, I was quite close to including a Manchester United team, I can't lie, because that United team that had Beckham, Scholes, Keane and Giggs in midfield, and the four forwards that they could rotate, and Yapstam and Dennis Irwin and Peter Schmeichel in his prime, even though Neville and Ronnie Johnson were kind of a level below the rest of the teammates, they were still solid seven out of tens every week. That team was phenomenal. Three league titles, European Cup, they were just incredible. And the simplicity of them was fantastic. And I mean, the, the Wenger, the two Wenger teams that Arsenal had, specifically the one that went unbeaten, they were also just, they were just magnificent teams that played incredible football. But that, those two united from 
let's say, 97 to 2004 and Arsenal from the same era, like that seven-year span, United win four titles, Arsenal win three. They go head-to-head multiple times. This rival, That's the greatest rivalry I've ever seen in football. And I, we'll never see it again in the Premier League. The league won't allow it. They won't allow two teams to have that type of this public dislike for each other. They won't allow that level of physical con- confrontation. Like those teams could outplay anybody else. They could outfight anybody else. And when they came head to head, no matter who you supported, you could be a Liverpool fan, an Everton fan, a Chelsea fan. It didn't matter. When United played Arsenal, you were watching because it was box office every single time. So I, I'd throw both of those teams in that kind of year. But the United team that won the first three in a row, that, that midfield is just ridiculous. Yeah, you also told me this pod was going to be our favourite team, so they would never be in it for me. <laughs> See, that's that's why I didn't put them in because yeah. you know they're 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 the team I hated more than any other. Yeah, but in in later years, the, just the more I watch them, the, the more I, I I think about that team and the fact that they just year after year were so consistent. They never changed the style of play. They just went out and did the same thing game after game and was like, well, we're better than you, so we're just going to play our style and you can adapt to us. And that reminds me of the stories that you hear from when Liverpool were under Bob Paisley. Liverpool just went and played their football and let the other team adapt because they're not as good as us. And I, I, you don't see, you see, obviously, the, the Guardiola's team does that now and whatever else, but, I mean, it, it's different. He, he bought his success. Ferguson built his success. Wenger built his success. It's a very different era. But those teams, I mean, as a Liverpool fan, it was just fucking horrendous to watch because they were so much better than us. They were so much better than us. And we had some good teams. We couldn't compete with that. Right. We Um, will. Should should probably mention as well before we finish, we did agree to not do any Liverpool teams. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. We did agree (laughs) to do it as non Liverpool. So that's why there are no Liverpool teams here. Uh, Because otherwise, like, Another time. No, there would be otherwise. No, I'm just saying. Otherwise, (laughs) there would be probably two or three Liverpool teams that we put in. Um, Because the the mid '90s team under Roy was always fun, even though they weren't very good. Right, we'll leave it there, folks. Thanks as always, and we will see you next time. Bye bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.